0: They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: I'm April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. When John Gerak mentioned Bill Fitzsimmons and Trout Bum, he wrote about Bill's professionalism, skill, and deliberate efforts to avoid the camera. So, naturally, I was delighted when Bill agreed to share more of his story here on Anchored. From Christmas Island in the early 1980s, the early days of fly fishing for tarpon and owning a fly shop in Basalt, Colorado, Bill knows the fishing industry as much as anyone. Bill and his brother Mark are regulars around my campfire in BC, and this fall I was finally able to record him. In this episode, we discuss the early days of saltwater destinations, fly size, and if catch and release fishing is selfish. Simmons, international man of mystery. (laughs) That's really what you are to me.
2: I I think you're being a little kind, and uh, I appreciate the compliment, but I'm not sure that that's the case.
1: Well, let me go ahead, and I've got to set the stage for people listening. For starters, yes, the audio quality is going to be a little bit poor in this episode, because we are sitting in my cabin on the Bulkley with a sleeping baby and no power on, and we're using the old USB mic. So um, I will do what I can in post pro to try to clean up the audio, but it's kind of just organic back to basics here. Um, so that's the first stage. That's that the world
2: I, I grew up in, and that's the world I continue to live in. So <laughs>
1: It's kidding. I did it just for you to make you comfortable. <laughs> um, the second stage I want to set for people listening is I met Bill accidentally <laughs> and very embarrassingly. I, I'm gonna. I don't want to paint myself in too negative of a of a picture here, so I'm gonna just kind of keep it broad okay okay um, I met Bill while I was having a temper tantrum on the river somebody had done something somebody shit in my boat launch okay like right in the middle of the boat launch and just threw toilet paper everywhere and plastic wrapper everywhere there were these two lovely men and were floating down and I that's right I said have you seen an Australian man up above and you guys said, yeah, he's coming in. And you guys were so nice. And I was going to fish. It was at the run in front of my house here. And I said, well, I'm too angry to fish. You guys, you guys fish. And I had no idea that you and your brother Mark were Fitzsimmons brothers. So I felt really stupid. And But then also very thankful because you've stayed in our lives ever since. And so hopefully you don't How many years the- ago
2: was that? Five. That's been five years ago now.
1: Oh, right, wait. No, hang on. So four years ago. Yeah. Uh,
2: four or five, four yeah. Four or five, yeah, yeah. no, because
1: I got game cams right after. That's right. That, yeah, mate, so yeah, five five years ago and four years ago I rigged this place with cameras. Um, yep. So that's how we It met. was just
2: a tent here then.
1: That's right, yeah, before yeah. it was taken down in the ice storm. Uh, so Bill, let's just start where we start, everybody. So where were you born and raised?
2: Uh, Montpelier, Vermont, in uh, the capital city of Vermont, city of all of 8,000. I lived there until I left to go to college.
1: Are you offended if I ask how old you are?
2: No, um, I'm not, but I won't answer.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> <That's fair. laughs> no, I'm. I, I was born in '48. Okay. So I'm 71 years old now.
1: Okay. Now, what about Mark? Is he younger than you? Mark
2: is younger. Yeah, Mark's uh, four years younger than I. I am the oldest of four.
1: So, if you had to describe yourself as a kid, how would you describe
2: yourself? Uh, well, I always liked to fish. Probably my first. Memory, if I think back, the first thing that really is a, is a strong memory for me. I can remember at five years old, going down to New Hampshire to spend a week with my grandfather with my dad's father, and um, he didn't know what to do with me
1: your dad or your
2: grandpa my grandpa mm-hmm. you know he's uh, had been widowed had uh, No other grand, I mean, I was the oldest grandchild, so we had no experience with it. And so I went down there, and he was kind of at a loss as to what to do to to keep me amused. But I always liked catching bugs. Uh, I had a butterfly collection already, and a, a friend of his there volunteered to take me fishing. It was in some small little New England brook trout stream. And this guy, I think, did it as a favor. And would have really rathered go by himself, but took the five-year-old kid along anyway. And he uh, set me on a rock out there with a little spin cast kind of outfit. I don't even remember what it was. And um, put a worm on and had me toss this thing into a little pool there. And I started catching dace in, in creek chubs. And he went fishing. And came back with these magnificent brook trout. Oh. Which, I, I mean, look at the colors of those things. I'd never seen one before in my life. And he said, okay, well, he's going to fish up a little farther. Let's move. And he took me up to a, a different rock. I sat on it and started catching these little things. And I caught a brook trout. And it was massive. And I, sh- I showed it to him. I called him over. And I come over. look at this, look at this. Oh boy, I'm, I got to take this back and, and show it to Grandpa. I mean, look how big that thing is. And he said, "No, we can't do that. It's not big enough." And so this massive fish that I thought was, uh, the, you know, the most stupendous thing I'd ever seen proved to be less than six inches long. Oh, okay. Because that, that, that was the limit. Right. Okay. You had to, it had to be over six if you're going to keep it at that time i didn't know it in retrospect after learning the what had gone on and and becoming aware of uh the various regulations i realized that this this massive fish which is the largest thing i'd ever seen in my life was probably somewhere in a four to four and a half inch range <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i do remember that fish i started catching them then and, and and from then on that's all i wanted to do was go fishing and luckily my dad started taking me and uh it's, it's just gone. It's kind of gone on from there.
1: So this is interesting. When you think back to that time as a kid, in your head, how big is the fish in your memory?
2: Well, I remember at the time, I, I couldn't believe that he was going to tell me that that thing was too small. <laughs> I mean, because look at the size of it.
1: Do you remember it being like five pounds or anything? Uh, oh, I, you know,
2: I don't think I had any perspective.
1: Okay. But it,
2: it was just, it was so much bigger than those um, two-inch <laughs> dace and chubs that I was catching and, it, and the colors of it. There's no way a thing could be that colorful and not be big.
1: Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> Especially to a five-year-old.
1: Right. So your dad didn't fish before that.
2: My dad fished, um, but we did not have the opportunity. Uh, you know, at that that time, he was pretty busy trying to get a house built and trying to make a living. And, you know, he, he was uh, a veteran just back from the war. So it was really a, a couple years after that, that my dad started fishing. We'd spend a couple weeks each summer uh, on a lake in Vermont. And although there were no trout, we fished for uh, smallmouth bass. And I have very fond memories of going out in the evenings, paddling around in a canoe, throwing a jitterbug, a black jitterbug up against these cement walls, the retaining walls that held in the uh, supported the road around the lake. And so the water was two feet, three feet deep right off the cement walls, and and there was all the riprap that they had, had fallen off when they were building the road, and it was filled with crawdads. And um, bass would come into the shallow water in the evening, and we caught them, you know, every every night. And it was all very visual kind of thing. You'd throw out that big old jitterbug, and it'd come walking across the top, and these things would come up and smash it. I remember catching one. Uh, we, my dad had a friend who uh, worked for the, the same insurance company that he worked for who had a, a, a cabin down on the lake and he was sort of the dean of bass fishermen of uh, of Lake Maury and um, we we caught this I caught this fish and I can remember my uh, telling my dad dad grab it, grab it, grab it and we're in a canoe and it's tippy and he's looking down at this fish and thrashing around and the mouth is fish's mouth is full of hooks, and it's about dark, and there wasn't any way that he was going to stick his hand down there, down into that fish's mouth. We didn't have a net, and you just grab bass by the lip, but he was he was uh, very reluctant to s- stick his hand into that fish's mouth with all those treble hooks until the fish was pretty well expended, and um, so we got him, and uh, it was uh, according to Mister Wellman, the authority. It was the largest smallmouth that had been taken in the lake in 10 or 12 years or something like that.
1: So that wasn't just your young mind thinking about it? Oh, no,
2: no. It was a big fish. In fact, in my house now, I still have. When we got home, Dad uh, took an old um, grocery bag, one of those brown bags that... You know, you don't get in the grocery store anymore. And he cut it open with scissors and laid the fish down on the grocery bag, and traced the outside of the fish on that bag. And I still have that. I had it framed, Aww. and I've got it up on the wall in the house. And I think the fish was, you know, for a Vermont smallmouth, it was a, it was big. I, I believe that it was uh, four and a half pounds. It was over twenty inches long, and a big old fat. Bellied bass, you know, like they get. But I still have that uh, in my dad's handwriting. He was left-handed, and you can tell he was left-handed. Caught by Billy Fitz. Uh, was the 1st of July, and I think it was 1959 or something like that.
1: What about fly fishing?
2: That was something I didn't get into until after I had moved out west. I fished the brook trout streams just with spinning gear and, and worms and fished every single day all summer from when I was maybe 13 or 14 until uh, no, until I went away to college.
1: So you fished throughout your high school years?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Every day all summer. Had a couple friends and we always went. And uh, I'd bring home brook trout for dinner and lived, pretty much lived on those when I went out west uh, after after graduating from college in Vermont.
1: Where is west for you?
2: Out to Colorado. Okay. Uh, I went out there f- for the skiing. I, I did a lot of ski racing when I was growing up. I moved out there for the skiing to see a gal that I spent most of my uh, college years with. And uh, uh, I got a job doing marketing work for the Aspen Skiing Corporation. And one of the guys that I worked with... We worked for the Skiing Corporation during the day and stamped cans at the local grocery store at night from four o'clock until midnight. He was a, an aquatic biologist from the University of Montana. Went to school in Missoula, and Frankie um, tied flies and uh, and fly fished. Just hanging around with him, uh, I decided I needed to to start fly fishing. I had somehow found a, I think I found an old used rod and a mismatched reel and mismatched line at the thrift store in Aspen and started fishing with that. My folks, uh, heard about this and, uh, the first Christmas that I was in Aspen, which would have been in nineteen seventy or seventy one, they bought me a, uh, a fly tying kit for christmas a little knowing what kind of beast they were going to unleash as a result of that gift and i started tying flies boy i tied a lot of them (laughs) mostly out of scrounged materials couldn't afford anything else uh we had a uh, frankie and i both lived in the same apartment complex and they had a the, the really nasty old shag carpeting you could reach down with your hand and and, and pull this stuff out of the carpeting. It was kind of a brownish gold kind of color. Hmm. And we tied a fly with hair's ear material for the back half of the body and this uh, dubbing material from the carpet with a brown hackle, cheap old brown hackle, palmered through, and we called it a rug rat. And we caught hmm. catch fish all day long out of the roaring fork in a frying pan with that little nymph in a size 14 or a size 12.
1: What did you take in college?
2: Um, boy, as little as possible. (laughs) Mostly I chased a gal around in college, and we skied a lot. Um, A girl I met at some ski races, we were together for 45 years. But I would not call myself a very serious student. I majored in, uh, in English, minored in German, took a lot of journalism courses, and barely escaped with a degree. But, um... Did escape with a great girlfriend, so that was uh, that made life worthwhile for me.
1: What did you want to do though?
2: Uh, I did, I wanted to go skiing.
1: Oh, I understand. Okay, <laughs> with your career, what was your career plan?
2: I did not have a career plan. I wanted to make a living by going skiing, I wanted to be a ski racer or do something I didn't know exactly.
1: Did you make a living doing that?
2: Uh, yeah, I did. I, I ran the marketing department for the Aspen Skiing Corporation for a number of years. Um, I was in charge of all of the, uh, their, uh, their racing events, um, the World Cup races, the pro races. Ran all those events at, at, uh, at Aspen, Buttermilk, Snowmass, Breckenridge, and also we were 50-50 partners with the Canadian government in developing Blackcomb. And I ran the events at Blackcomb when they were opening up there, too.
1: How long did you work in that industry for?
2: Oh, gosh. Uh, During the winter, I think I did that for seven years or so, six or seven years during the winter. I spent one summer working for them, building lifts, and realized that uh, that was something I didn't want to do again. So during the summer after that, I, I decided I uh, needed to do something else. So I started a one-man fly tying and, and guiding operation.
1: Okay, so leading up to that point then, had you become friends with people in the fly fishing industry?
2: No, I didn't know anybody. This was uh, on, on a little stream in Colorado that was semi-well-known, you know, back in those days before the Internet. So everything was, was word of mouth or the printed word. The river that I was on—I lived along this river. Uh, it was called the Frying Pan River. Was probably known best because Ernie Schwiebert wrote about it. Ernie was a big fan of the river, and you know, I got to know him when he came to fish. You know, it was uh, it was a a, a tail raised fishery. It was a phenomenal trout fishery before the dam was built. And they buried a tremendous amount of water when they built the dam. The the par- portion of the frying pan that is now beneath Rudi Reservoir was a meandering oxbow, classic dry fly stream. Uh, there was a place on, on the frying pan below the dam or above the dam now or underneath the dam now, I should say, where you could um, park your car by the road or by the river and walk down the bank and get in the river and fish about a mile or a mile and a quarter of a river upstream, winding back and forth through these bends until it came back to the road again, and then walk a 100 yards back to your car. So that's what it did through that high alpine valley, just just big horseshoes and back and forth. And they buried it underneath the uh, icy cold waters of Rudi Reservoir, and now there's only 14 miles of it between the dam and its confluence with the Roaring Fork River in, in Basalt, Colorado. Which is where my fly shop was.
1: Is that what the one man fly operation was? Well,
2: Actually. it started. It started out. I knew I wanted to do something with the fishing thing, as uh, as it became obvious that I wasn't going to be a professional skier forever. And uh, my girlfriend from college, uh, we were still together, of course, and we purchased a uh, an old rundown group of cabins on the frying pan. There were six uh, old log cabins and a, uh, and a main house that had been uh, utilized as long-term rentals by absentee owners for a number of years. And it was a partnership that owned it due to the fact that there were four of them or five of them and it was such a small deal, it was not worthwhile for any one of them to take charge of it. And it was, it was a mess. There was no living anything on the property. They parked everywhere. People changed their oil in the middle of the, oh. the lawn. Uh, the cabins were run down. The roofs leaked. And they realized that either they were going to have to put a bunch of money into it or sell it. And they tried to sell it, and nobody would buy it because it was such a mess. And I knew one of the guys that was one of the owners. And I um, approached him and said, what's it going to take? But if I decide to buy this, they're to try to buy this. What kind of deal can you give me?
1: Were you going to make it a lodge? What was your plan?
2: I don't, didn't have a plan. Okay, <laughs> um, That was before the pre-plan or in the pre-planning days. I, I needed to get, get something, buy something. I had no money. We had no money at all. And so they agreed to sell me the cabins, and they would uh, finance the whole thing. And in lieu of a down payment, all I had to do was assume the liability for the damage deposits of the existing renters. It was like 600 bucks or something. I didn't have the 600 bucks, but I assumed the liability for their damage deposit, and that was my down payment. And so we moved into the, the main house, and I started fixing it up and started fixing up the cabins and uh, tore all the roofs off, put on new shake roofs, fixed up all the logs, built rock planters. Actually, my other brother moved out uh, one summer and uh, helped me do some of that stuff. And we fixed up the cabins. Um, I put down, I can't remember how many thousand square feet of sod, reclaimed the driveway, turned it into a a lawn and planted flowers everywhere and, and made it look like a kind of a neat little, little resortish log cabins up in the mountains. And uh, there was a creek that ran right through the property, oh. separated the main house from the cabins, and it was called Taylor Creek.
1: But I've heard of Taylor Creek.
2: Taylor Creek was the name of my fly shop. Oh. And so I started renting the cabins out to fishermen. And uh, on the other side of the creek from where the cabins were, was the main house and there was a garage and the garage was built for a Volkswagen Beetle but the garage was so small that you had to let the passenger out before you pulled the car into the garage because it wasn't wide enough to open both doors yeah so it was it was not a very big uh, big structure at all and I turned that into my fly shop i put a fly tying bench in there and had a box that we made that had the flies in it and I put a sign down, Taylor Creek Cabins Fly Shop open. And uh, I tied all the flies. I guided out of there. I got fifty-five dollars a day for a full-day guide trip for three people. Whoa! If, um, or two people.
1: Were you oh. rafting? Were you on foot? Well, on
2: all was all Wade trips all wade trips on the frying pan. And at that time, I could fish all 14 miles of water on the frying pan. None of it was posted. Uh, None of it was catch and release. It was all under an eight-fish bag limit. Uh, There were no special regulations anywhere in Colorado at that time. So I I started doing that. If I was guiding and, and Jerry was home, people would come in and buy flies, and I had a green. Actually, it's funny, it was my dad's old tackle box that we used to use on Lake Maury. I had this green tackle box, and I had change in the little compartments on top, and the dollar bills were in the, the big compartment in the bottom, and if people would come in and buy flies, and they'd figure out how much they owed, and they'd put their money in the tackle box.
1: You operated on an honor system?
2: Yeah, well, if Jerry was there, she'd go in and people would, would do that, yeah. you know? Yeah, do it that way. If she was not there and I was not there, then we were closed. Okay. But, um, you know, we had uh, young kids at that time, so she was home most of the time. She was a stay-at-home mom and uh, helped take care of the garden. We grew most of our own food, shot a couple deer, a couple elk every year. Uh,
1: How many kids did you have? Four. I I I have to ask a personal question. Without having a plan and kind of winging your career— and having four children, were you ever terrified that you wouldn't be able to support a family? I mean, a lot of people nowadays battle with this. How did you handle it?
2: Um, well, we, we, we supplied most of our own food. It cost us very little to live. I had the rental income from the cabins in terms of making my mortgage payments. I'd, I would spend uh, about a month each fall getting firewood. I tore out the heating system in the house uh, because we needed the furnace room. We turned into a bedroom when we started having more kids than we should have. And um, we got uh, a soapstone stove from Vermont, a hearthstone wood-burning stove, and we could heat the whole house with wood. Yeah. Uh, So it didn't cost us anything for utilities or very little for utilities. I irrigated out of the creek. Uh, watered all the lawn out of the creek. So it, it really cost us very little to um, to live. I had the, the shop going, and at that time, I was still working for the Skiing Corporation during the winter, uh, doing the marketing work.
1: How did you market your own company?
2: Boy, it was word of mouth back in those days, and, and, and just getting to know people. I, I met some folks, uh, uh, Charlie Myers who became a very dear friend. Charlie was the outdoor editor of the Denver Post, and Charlie kind of took me under his wing. I would have been in my late 20s, maybe early 30s when we met, and Charlie and I used to fish together. I I started telling you earlier, I went up to, uh, had the little fly shop going, and I went up to the, uh, the FFF Conclave in West Yellowstone, Montana. And at that time, I tied... Every every spare second I had, I loved tying flies, and I tied um, a crawdad pattern that was incredibly realistic. It was all natural materials, you know, with claws and legs and pinchers, and uh, I mean, it, it, it did look like a crawdad. For
1: what? For to catch what?
2: Uh, I, did, did, I never fished with it. Okay. I just tied it. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Some people fish fish for bass with it, but we didn't have bass there, so I never. I never, I've never even cast it, but at any rate, it was a neat looking fly, and I had fun tying them, and Charlie saw one of them, and he put it on the lapel of his sport coat up at the uh, FFF Conclave in West Yellowstone, and just kind of as a, something to talk about, whatever. People kept saying, well, who tied, well, look at that thing, and and you know, back in those days, it was the, uh, the, the industry was different. There, there weren't. All the different tires, you know, splashing stuff all over the internet and all over the magazines, and uh, and and uh, it, it was a much simpler, frankly cleaner, and, and more pleasant uh, uh, industry to be a part of. And uh, Charlie ended up coming to me and saying, "Well, you know, people want to watch you tie those things." And it again, it's a close knit group. There might have been maybe two or three. Maybe 400 people total that would go to these conclaves. A lot of them shop owners, uh, people from the industry, the rod manufacturers, what few of them there were. And, and then just um, serious fly fishermen types would, would be there. And they would go to West Yellowstone. It is the Mecca and one of the areas that had some of the, the finest trout fishing anywhere in the country. And people would go there to fish to be there at the same time as this conclave, just to get together with people that uh, spoke the same language as them and um, look at some of the new stuff, you know, as they do now, too. You go to those shows, April. And so Charlie wrangled me an invitation to to tie at this thing. And I, I thought that was pretty good. So he said, well, show up tomorrow morning and we'll have a place for you to tie. So I went in the next morning and, and sure enough there was a place at the fly tying table with an empty chair and it, he had a little name tag thing on it that said my name and I was supposed to sit there and I looked, looked over to one side of me and, and there was a name tag that said George Harvey. George was you know professor emeritus of fly fishing at Penn State University George was probably in his mid 60s i would guess then just a wonderful respected man uh knew more about the literature the the sport the history uh than probably anybody and then on the other side was this guy named Lee Wolf <laughs> and and i thought holy crap <laughs> so we sat down to tie it, it probably took me twenty minutes to get my hands shaking in the same direction. I was breaking thread. I was dropping my scissors. I stabbed myself with my scissors. <laughs> but after the bleeding stopped, these guys were great. We, we, I sat there and tied flies, and that was sort of my introduction to uh, uh, to the industry. And um, very gracious people, welcoming. It's 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 a different world. How do you then, view then, it
1: now, Bill? Sorry to cut you up. How um, do you view it now?
2: I'm glad I w- I gl- I'm glad I did it then. I, you know, I always consider myself sort of a dinosaur and, and and am. There are obviously some wonderful people that are 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 still a part of this industry, but there is something about the. Oh, the glory shots, the YouTube, the unending promotion that occurs on the internet. Because you're not even um, on social
1: media, are you? No. So you don't even... There's a whole area that you haven't even seen yet.
2: Well, I've seen enough of it to know that I don't want to see any more of I it. I believe it. Um, and and that is that is not meant to be demeaning. It just is I don't have... I just don't have an interest in it. I, I, I've seen so many things go downhill... The main reason I sold my store, sold that business, was that I I finally got to the point that I couldn't be cordial to the people that I had to be nice to in order to be successful in the business. We had so many folks, I don't say so many, it's not like hundreds, but
1: Enough. uh,
2: enough that had never fly fished before. That came to us and, and discovered something that is a wonderful sport. Decided they really want to do this. They fish with the guides. Uh, we, we teach them how to, how to catch these fish, how to cast, uh, how to appreciate the sport. They traveled with us. And then they go up the river and they buy a ranch and they put up a posted signs. And now nobody can fish there except for their friends. And these were the waters that I used to guide on. These are the waters that I taught my kids to fish on. And I can't fish them anymore. Now the frying pan of the 14 miles that I used to fish, approximately half of it is posted. They've gone in with uh, you know heavy excavation equipment and manufactured these runs and put in, uh, they, they call it stream re- rehabilitation. We call it stream rearrangement. They're, they're very... Um, not natural looking. I mean, there that structure that supports fish and all, but it doesn't look like a trout stream that, uh, uh, that nature created. It's, it's a man-made trout stream. They'll, they'll put in a bunch of great big fish that they bought and then have, have some friend of theirs has never fished before, be able to come up and catch a seven pound fish or something. Um, uh, deformed. <laughs> and it, it, it's a different, it's a different world than the one that, uh, that I found when I first fished there,
1: is that why you started branching off into the more natural fisheries like BC and like Christmas? Island? Um,
2: you know I, I started doing that. I, I, our Our guide business was primarily uh, was for trout fishing and and in Colorado. I had uh, one of the gals that that worked for me for the skiing corporation. Her boyfriend was from Miami. And he had a friend in the Keys who ran the uh, the head boat at Budden Mary's in Isla Morada. You know the big big charter boat that takes a hundred people out there bottom fishing and stuff like that. Uh, Jackie lived uh, lived in in Isla Morada, and they went down in the in the spring after the ski lifts closed to spend a couple weeks down there just to get away from the the snow and the the mud and the you know the spring drearies, and once the ski lifts closed, and they invited us, uh, Jerry and I, to go down and spend some time with them down there.
1: Approximately what year?
2: That probably was in the early '80s. I'm gonna say maybe '81. So we spent uh, we spent about ten days down in the Keys, and there was a a, a young guide in his first or second year of guiding out of Bud and Mary's, who rented the house across the street from where we were staying, and I got to know him. He didn't really have any customers that could cast a fly rod well, and that was something that was always pretty easy for me to do. And we got to know each other, and I went out and fished with him just for fun. After his charters, uh, we hit it off and uh, started fishing together. I would go down and fish in uh, in a fly bonefish tournament in the fall with him, and he'd come up and uh, and go elk and deer hunting with me in Colorado. We just kind of worked out of a trade. I worked out a trade that way. And I always felt that you know that the Keys guides were oh probably the most qualified, uh, the most necessary of any of the guides that I'd ever you know come. Uh, come in contact with, uh, you, you can't do it without them, you know. There, there's an awful lot of islands out there, and they all look exactly the same, especially in the dark. So I kind of put them on a on a plateau above all others. And, you know, I decided I'd, uh, this saltwater fly fishing is, 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 is a pretty good time. I like this. So I started looking at, at ways to grow the fly shop business, one of which, obviously, was to get into the travel thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Was that big back then with other companies?
2: Um, Frontiers was pretty much it. I read a thing about Christmas Island. Word was just getting out that there was something there. Uh, it was pretty rough, believe me. Yeah,
1: because when was the first year that you went there?
2: It was before the mid-'80s. Yeah. That's
1: so early.
2: Yeah, it was... Um, you never knew exactly when the plane was going to come. It was it was one flight a week, chartered from Air Nauru to get down there. I think that they had, if I remember correctly, they offered two packages, one for five days and one for ten days, but many of the five-day packages ended up being ten-day packages because the plane didn't come.
1: Well, I was going to ask you that. Did yeah. you ever get stuck?
2: Uh, not Not really stuck. We did one time, uh, the plane didn't come, and they had to wake us up at at about 3 o'clock in the morning and say, now the plane's coming. Um, you know, if you want to be on it, <laughs> get your stuff together. The the hotel was, was really rough. It was an old British Army barracks, the Captain Cook Hotel. Uh, we had a, a big old land crab that lived in our shower. You go in and turn on the hot water, He'd come out of the, there was no um, grate over the shower drain. Right. He'd come up out of the drain as soon as the hot water went down there and climb up in the corner on the wall until you turn the shower off and he'd go back down and go back down the drain.
1: Hey, what did they do for drinking water back then? That was really before
2: bottles. You brought it in. <laughs> okay. Uh, they had cisterns. Um, but uh, no, any water that we drank, we, it was it was it came in on the same plane that we came in on. And the first time that we went there, I mean, pretty much nobody had ever been there. And I thought, well, here, this is a pretty big deal. The, the, the fishing was f- phenomenal.
1: Really? What, like, were the, G, was it GTs? Was yeah, there was it everything. Uh,
2: the bonefish were un, unpressured and, and very, um, very agreeable. They, uh, were they big? They'd not seen a fly. Well, you know, Pacific bonefish tend not to be as big as the Florida fish. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a different stature. I think that they spend more time running around trying not to get eaten. So they're they're not not those great big fat slobs like you get on the grass flats in Isla Mirada. Uh, there were some good fish. You know, we had fish that were nine pounds or I don't know if I ever saw a 10-pounder there, but I saw, you know, nine-pound fish with some regularity on certain flats. Uh, but the... The, uh, the neat part of it was the, uh, the variety of flats. There were soft flats that, uh, that the fish would come up and tail on. Um, there were a lot of coral flats where they'd be just darting around, eating, I think, primarily bay fish that lived, lived among the coral. And, and you could fish the ocean side flats where you're, you know, you've got waves coming in, and there's a barrier reef in between there and the beach. There were there were fish, and uh, those fish were um, incredibly strong and fast, uh, and and you could go out and catch forty or fifty of them in a day if you wanted to easily.
1: Were the triggers easily. just stupid?
2: Um, you know, we never we didn't really fish for them.
1: Trigger that just wasn't a thing back then. No, nope. no,
2: nope. people were f- fishing for bonefish and trevally, uh, some for milkfish, tuna, some offshore fishing a little bit. Mostly it was for bonefish, and that was what people wanted to, to catch there. And we, we, um, we did a lot of trips there. It was, it was a great destination to sell to anglers because regardless of your level of expertise or uh, fly rod skills or ability to see fish or experience level, everybody exceeded their expectations there. Guys that were pretty good came home thinking they were really good, and guys that didn't think that they didn't thought that they didn't have a chance would come back thinking hmm, I may have to do this again, you know. And we ended up taking two or three groups a year there. Uh, I don't know. I, I counted it up once on my passports. I don't know if it was that was thirty five trips or thirty seven trips or something like that over the years. So it was that was a big part of it, and we did other travel. Things too. We had some lodges in in Alaska that we uh, that we booked for, and uh, did trips to Belize and and Mexico and the Bahamas. And I did a uh, a a promotional trip to Christmas Island. The the Fitzgeralds wanted to inject some some new life into the the uh, Christmas Island fly fishing program and produce a new brochure and try to get the word out to the rest of the people in the industry, other shop owners and stuff, that it was available. They asked me to um, to talk to some of the powers that be, the uh, the government people on Christmas, and see what type of promotional program we could put together to get a group of people in the fly fishing industry from the States to go there at one time on a reduced rate kind of deal, to, to produce a brochure and, and to um, introduce people who had not seen it uh, to what Christmas Island had to offer. And um, the uh, the folks there were, were, were very receptive. They thought it was a good idea. And they we put together, I can't remember exactly the specifics, um, April, but it was something like, I think it was $1,000 or a little less than $1,000 to go to Christmas Island for a week and included your airfare. That included and, airfare? Yeah. And so they Susie said, "Well, you can you can get 24 people to go with you. Go ahead." And there were some Givens that needed to go. Uh, you know, people that were well known in the fly fishing industry that that wanted to go there. That frontiers wanted to be there. Uh, Val Atkinson was our photographer, Lefty Cray came with us, uh, the owners of, you know, Bruce Kirshner from Sage, and and uh, the general manager of Cortland, and Yvonne Chenard and, uh, gosh, I, you know, it's, I haven't thought of this for years. It was a who's who of the fly fishing industry. Luckily, they... Uh, they allowed me to have a couple wild cards, so I got to invite some people that I wanted to invite. Yeah. One of whom was, uh, was Robbie Stewart from the Lower Dean River Lodge. Oh, really? Um, which is how I ended up with my spots on a Dean.
0: <laughs> <sighs> Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th.
1: What's the story behind the map? It's been five, and I was doing the math when you were talking. It's been five; it has been five years since I met you, and five years ago you were telling a story about a map of Christmas Island or Kiribati. Yep, and I'd love to hear it here.
2: Moana Fuati Cafe. Moana was the head guide at Christmas Island, probably the fishiest person that I've ever had the the privilege of fishing with. Moana's. Ability to see fish is far beyond anybody that I've ever come, you know, come in contact with, anywhere in the Keys or anywhere. Plus, he could only only see out of one eye, so how he did it, I don't know. Moana was a, uh, actually was a Gilbertese native. He was a merchant seaman who uh, ended up on Christmas Island taking care of his brother's wife, and he uh, did some commercial fishing there, and ended up being a guide at the Captain Cook Hotel. And Moana caught his very first bonefish with a fly rod when, when we were fishing together. And it, and it really kind of changed his life. Um, all of a sudden, he was a fly fishing guide, and he was an exceptional one. Moana and I got to be very good friends. I was down there quite a few times. Moana actually came to the States uh, to the Fly Tackle Dealer Show one year and spent some time with us in Colorado. And over the course of... Oh, probably four or five years, with my having been down there at least a dozen times over that course of time. Moana, uh, Moana and I really became close. And uh, one one year, uh, for the last the last day of the the trip there, in the evening, the hotel puts on a luau. That's right. They roast a pig and have lobsters, and it's a it's a big feed. And it's a big deal for the guides to be able to go, because they get to eat stuff that they never get any other time. Like, they can eat as much ice cream as they want.
1: And they still do this. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. And
1: they dance, and it's amazing. Yep,
2: yep. And uh, so I asked Moana, I said, uh, I said, Moana, um, you're going to come to the luau tonight? And he said, no. He says, "Uh, I am making a map of Christmas Island, of the flats of Christmas Island for you. And I said, uh, well, that's very nice, Moana. I figured something on a bar napkin. I had no idea. Uh, next day, he comes to the airport, there's no mention of the map. Mm, well, it's one of those things, you know. The next time we're there is probably six months later or something. And just in passing, I made a brief mention of the map. And oh, I'm, he says, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. And I said, okay, I'm I'm not gonna say this, it, you know. It's just one of those things that it was really a neat offer and and we'll just go from there. And um it was it was two years later. We're getting ready for the luau again. And I said, Moana, um, are you gonna come to the Luau tonight? You know, you could be my guest at the Luau. And he said, No, Bill. He said, Tonight I will finish the map. <sighs> and I said, well, You know, there's been no mention of this for two years. And he comes to the airport the next morning, and he has uh, rolled up in a tube the official uh, survey map done by the British government of Christmas Island. The the Republic of Kitabas was a part of the British Commonwealth until 1979. And uh, they had a uh, you know, it's a survey map. It's it's an official-looking thing with longitude, latitude, very precise drawing mm. of, of Christmas Island and all the little islands in the lagoon and all. And it's the largest coral atoll in the world. The lagoon is huge. Uh, we we walked across it one day. It it, it took us all day. Uh, it was you know, I can't remember. We figured it was twelve miles or fourteen miles to wind our way across this. And Moana unrolls this thing mm. and here's he's drawn the map of the flats on this official survey map, and all the flats are in are shaded in light green in the blue of the water and, and it's dead nuts on
1: How did he do it though
2: well he's he said uh, he gave me the map he said bill he said i'm so sorry it took long time. He said I had to pace it off so over two years he kept track. Of everything, somehow in his head, or I don't know whether he sketched it, but you can—I mean, it's—it's it's dead nuts on.
1: That is incredible. And um, well, what was Charles saying? What's the map that we have hanging above our bed? Well,
2: okay, so we have. <laughs> so I got this map, and I brought it back, and, and I um I took it down to Denver to the the fly tackle dealer show to show Susie Fitzgerald. I said, "Look at this thing that Moana made for me." And she said, "Oh, we got to get copies of that made." I said, "Okay, well, that sounds good. Let's make a, you know a certain number of them and sell them, but um, the money goes to Moana's kids' college fund." Cool. And so that was that was the way it was done. And I think there were, that Frontiers printed up 200 copies. They're about a third the size of the original. I mean, mine is. Um, I'm guessing it's four feet wide and close to two and a half, three feet tall. Somehow, well, Charles inherited one from
1: Andrew. Yeah,
2: yeah. and uh, and that's we we talked about it. Charles, when we were talking about Christmas Island the first day we met, he said, uh, he said, "Oh, mate," he said, you, "you you should see this map I have of Christmas Island." And uh, I said, "Charles, you know, take a look at it if you." If you read the inscription in the bottom, it says, um, from my best friend, Bill Fitzsimmons, and it describes a day of fishing. When Moana and a guy named Sam Weller and Jackson Strait, who has a fly shop in Colorado, still is there at Mountain Angler in Breckenridge, and, uh, and Moana, the four of us, hiked across the lagoon. And we caught well over 200 bonefish fish. Over the course of the day. Moana calls that now it's it's called Bill's Track. And he's and in, that's inscribed on the map and you yeah. start at the at the north end of Go Like Hell Flat. Go like Hell Flat gets its name because the only way you can get to it by truck is to get the truck up to about fifty miles an hour to to make it across this mud flat. If you try to go slowly you get bogged down. Yeah. You have to hydroplane across it. Right. Um, and you start there and you you hike across the lagoon you, a couple places you've got to put your rod in your teeth and hold your um your pack up in the air to get across something that's a a little deep at certain tides but but it can be done
1: do they still do that trip that's a big trip that's a big day I
2: don't think anybody does that anymore i don't know I don't know that anybody else but Moana could find it and and I don't you know we were we were <laughs> I don't think the average guy going to Christmas Island is probably up for that yeah. kind of thing. A few of them would be. Somewhere. A few of them would be. Yeah, but um,
1: it'll beat you up. I mean, granted, when oh I, like, man, when I was there, I was just getting out of my first trimester, so I was really beat up being pregnant, obviously. But it it beat me up pretty hard.
2: Yeah, it's, it's the sun's lot. pretty intense, mm-hmm. and it's uh,
1: it's a lot of walking. I don't know how those guys do it in the boots if they're wearing boots. I mean. Some of those guys do it without wearing anything on their feet. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, they they were all barefoot when I first went there. We wore uh, Converse high tops.
1: Really? There were no flats boots then? Oh, no. So that was the go-to.
2: Yeah, Converse high tops with uh, uh, James Scott had those uh, neoprene gravel guard things that you used to put over the old red ball waders so that the they wouldn't get perforated inside your wading shoes. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yep. What about shirts? What did you wear for... T-shirts. T-shirts.
2: Yeah. The, the second or third year, they came out with tarponware. wear, which was horrible. Man, right. that stuff was hot. Um, but that became sort of the uniform.
1: So wait, so Yvonne, if he was on that trip, he would have been thinking to himself, we got, we've got, we got to do better than this. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. that things had progressed a little bit by the time we did that. But I don't yeah. think that uh, Patagonia did not have any, uh, you know, warm weather fishing stuff. In fact, I don't. I think that they were just starting to get into fly fishing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm sure of that now. Yeah, because it was still it.
1: climbing for so long.
2: Yep, yep. How,
1: how did British Columbia end up in your life?
2: We were uh, one of the first sage dealers, and Don Green, who was one oh, of the owners of Sage Dean, used to go yes. up to the Dean and was was really. Uh, close with the Stewart family. He used to go up with uh to the uh, the Lower Dean River Lodge with uh with Robbie Stewart's dad and Dick Blewett.
1: They still do it every year. Um, well well when I was guiding there they still they still had
2: weeks every sage, year. Sage yeah Sage had a week. And uh at that time it was um when I went uh, uh Les Eichhorn always was on that trip. And Bruce Kirshner, who, you know, owned Sage at that time, and uh, a couple of the Sage reps, they had six spots. And then they would invite a dealer. Uh, and I got to go. I was invited by the the, the Colorado rep at that time. And, and Robbie Stewart and I hit it off well. And uh, the next year somebody backed out at the last moment or something and i got to go two years in a row this was in the old camp before it got washed away mm-hmm. the third year was the year that i put together the christmas island trip okay and robbie stewart was one of my wild cards that's right and robbie we're getting on a plane in hawaii and he's looking around and there's you know all the who's who of the fly fishing industry here and Robbie looked at me and he said, you know, I can tell I really don't deserve to be here. But he said, by the same token, you don't deserve the three spots you just got on the dean. (laughs) So for the next 20 some odd years or something, uh, two of my best friends and I went up and spent a week on the dean uh, with Robbie. Yeah, we've had some phenomenal fishing up there. So, um, obviously, I enjoyed steelhead fishing. That was before the spay days. Yeah. You know, once you've done that, it kind of gets in your blood. So I chased them in a few other places. used to go to the North Umpqua every fall and uh, do my um, preseason order with Umpqua Feather Merchants Mm -hmm. and spend a week in September fishing in North Umpqua. Uh, I went, went and caught them in Russia and... And started uh, one year, we did a trip up here to the Bulkley. I put together a group and we came up to a, a lodge up here. And that would have been, oh golly, probably in the early 90s or so. And just did that once. The steelhead thing does not really lend itself as well to putting together groups from a fly shop First of all, the groups for steelhead camps tend to be smaller, so they don't have the room for commissions and complimentary trips for the group leader and things like that. Uh, we did, however, keep a steel-hulled catch in in Wrangell, and um, we had a a 57-foot steel catch that we'd uh, pick people up and, and catch a can, and then spend ten days to two weeks between Ketchikan and Pe- and Petersburg, fishing all the Inside Passage oh, that's for cool. for steelhead on I mean, it. We had phenomenal steelhead Who's fishing. who was Who
1: owned that? Was that an uh, operation? The, uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the guy who ran the boat was a guy by the name of Ken Wyrick. He was uh, from Aspen originally, and that's where I knew him from. And Ken was, uh, you know, a, a licensed captain who decided that that's what he wanted to do, and he and his, his wife moved up to Alaska, and he did all kinds of sightseeing trips, whaling trips, salmon fishing trips, bottom fishing trips, whatever. He wasn't a fly fisherman mm. to speak of. But in those days, that that run was, it was pretty good, steelhead fishing. In terms of numbers of fish, it's the best I've ever seen.
1: When did you start here? Because I see you here every year.
2: I started coming up here, the first three years or four years that I came up here, uh, my, my better half passed away. And all of a sudden, it was just me and my dog. I decided I needed to, to go do some steelhead fishing in the fall. So I, uh, a friend of mine, well, Tony Hayes from Tongariro Lodge, Tony's been coming up here, and we had talked about going steelhead fishing. So I got a hold of Tony, and I said, "Well, I'll, I'll meet you up there. I'm going to get us a travel trailer." So I went and bought this old airstream, not the oh, one, not the one oh, I have now.
1: Okay, you know we look one. for you every single time that we go by the trailer park, <laughs> and it, it, the airstream was always in the exact same. Oh corner. yeah, way well,
2: up at the end because I can put a run in there for the dog. Right between there, there and a the fence, and he can run around in there. So Tony and I. Uh, I met Tony in, in Smithers. He flew in, and I dragged the trailer up here, and we went down and stayed on the Kispiox and did that for a couple years. No, actually, I, let me go back. That's not right. We met here and stayed at at, at Fort Telqua right. on the Bulkley, and it blew out. It It was huge, and it was dirty, and it wasn't getting any better, and we didn't know what to do. And this was back in the days when um, we could we could fish on the weekends and everything. Um, so we started driving around, went down to the Kispiox. I looked at it and I said, "You know, Tony, I've caught fish in the Dean when it looked a lot worse than what the Kispiox looks like right now. Mm-hmm. At least we can go fishing." So we came up here and grabbed the trailer, went down and parked it at uh, at is it Riverview Rivers? River's edge Riverview
1: on the Kisbyaks.
2: on the Ox, oh, <laughs> yeah left the trailer there and and I uh, fished out of there for oh three or four years uh, until I was accused of being an illegal guide.
1: Oh they hit you with
2: that <sighs> yeah well I had you know I came up for a month.
1: You still come up for a month
2: I know, but and I and I had a a bunch of friends, guys that I fished with, most of whom. We're still gainfully employed. They can't come up for a month; they can get a week. So I go to the airport on Saturday and drop somebody off and pick somebody else up. Ah. And then one of them, Mike Steiger, gosh, a guy from that I met on the Drake. Mike's fishing with me down on the uh, on the Skeena after I'd picked him up, and a couple of the Canadian. Um, there's there's a group at the at the campground that were were somewhat upset that we did pretty well and they didn't do very well and so they're thinking well this guy's coming up here he's got to be guiding i mean he gets a new guy every week uh, you know it fit the profile i i can't i'll admit that that certainly wasn't what i was doing and and it, it never occurred to me that it appeared that that was what i was doing but they tipped off the powers that be and we're down on the ski on the skeena and an officer comes up and starts talking to mike and mike says <laughs> oh this should be good <laughs> yeah he says to mike uh, who are you fishing with he says, oh that that guy up there um I, I came this is my first day i just came in to fish with him well how do you know him ah i met him on the internet <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I never never met him before in my life. <laughs> and so there it was. And um, What did they do? Well, he came up and gave me a lecture, and I said, hey, look. First of all, I don't need to guide. Um, was this recent? Because
1: you're talking the Drake Forum Board. I mean, I guess it's yeah, been around a long time. Yeah,
2: it has. This was um, six years ago or so, or five years ago. But at any rate, I became persona non grata at the at the campground down there so that's why i started started coming up here and now pretty much it's just my brother comes up with me now it's um uh although we have other friends that show up at a time matt you met yeah also from the drake and
1: how does someone like you who no offense but i don't see you as being particularly internet savvy unless i'm wrong how do you get on? not okay how did you get on the internet drake uh, on the drake Um, forum
2: board well, that's the only computer stuff that I have anything to do with. I don't do the any of the face. You don't plant. do
1: the Facebook, the Facebook. <laughs> the no. face
2: plant. No. So, what? Well,
1: what's the deal? You just got on the internet one day and you were like, "I'm going to just check I, these guys out." I don't
2: out. even remember. I, I I don't recall exactly. Oh, I like the magazine. I think probably it was very. It, I found it very refreshing. It was it was so far ahead of the uh, the you got some glory (laughs) kind of fishing magazines that were that were available and i read every one of those just because it was that was all there was
1: Uh, can i pick your brain about some fishing stuff sure okay you guys do something you guys fish differently and you catch more fish than most people i speak occasionally Mm, it's been five years of occasionally now (laughs) you catching more fish and you fish really small and really light, and you do it with confidence. And I just wanted to pick your brain about it a bit. I, I obviously, I know that the traditional way of fishing catches fish, but I can't, I usually can't seem to do it with as much confidence as, say, a black and blue or even, I mean, even a, a Lady Caroline makes you, you know, as large compared to the flies that you're fishing. Can you just explain, to people listening, what size and kind of fly you're you're using?
2: You know, I, I've always maintained that, especially with steelhead, that they're not hard to catch; they're just hard to find.
1: Okay, so talk me through your process. What what do you think you're doing differently to say a lot of the the young guns out there today?
2: We're doing something differently.
1: Yeah, why? You know, talk to me about we're it. We're
2: throwing something that they haven't seen before.
1: Okay, so light. Are you using tips? No. But you're not fishing dry flies. You're kind of subsurface.
2: Well, sometimes they skate. Sometimes they're on the surface. Sometimes they're just underneath the surface.
1: They're like an inch long.
2: Yeah. Yeah, if that.
1: Yeah, and they're sparse and they're natural colored.
2: Yeah, pretty much.
1: Okay. And so are you casting, I mean, are you following the whole grease line book? Can you walk me through the method to your madness?
2: Identify the water that you think that they're going to be in. You know, cover Depth and speed, and these fish are aggressive. They'll come to the top. Not all of them. Yeah. I, I I think I could catch more fish on tips if I fished them. Oh, you do. Yeah.
1: You just don't enjoy doing it. No. Are you? I trying? like the
2: casting. Yeah. I like casting a dry line. I like throwing a single spay or a snake roll or something. Plus, I fish out of my boat. Um, I never get out of the. I'm always standing in the middle of the watermaster because I get a puppy on the front of it. Who, right. if I put him on the bank, he's going to be in
1: kiss the ox. Yeah, yeah. He'll,
2: he'll he'll be in terrace before I know it. So, <laughs> but are
1: you trying to have your fly present itself like like what is the end goal for your fly? How do you want it looking to the fish?
2: I, I want it to um, to move across in front of that fish as naturally as it can, no sudden movement, no, and, and kind of keep it in front of them, but not stopped, just so it's a nice smooth swing. And uh, I always tie a loop knot on the fly, so I think the fly's kind of fluttering a little bit, mm-hmm. and it just looks like it's something alive. And and let's face it, these, these fish um made a living for quite a while eating little bugs. And, and even if they're not feeding now, you're just triggering a feeding response, and something clicks in their little tiny little brains and say, whoop, there's one of those, and here they come off the bottom in four feet of water and eat this tiny little thing that you'd, you'd think that they couldn't even see um, sometimes, but... They do. They do.
1: So you're not just fishing slower water, then. You're fishing everything, and you're just... Oh, I'm
2: fishing everything, exactly. I'll catch them in the faster water. If I find a fish, and he shows himself, and and I don't stick him, I'll stay with him.
1: So what do you do?
2: do? Switch flies, change things a little bit. Um, What would the a change
1: be? Sorry, I'm just getting excited here.
2: Smaller and darker, usually. Okay. I had a fish. uh, You remember that place up here where uh, we met when you guys were having lunch? You know where Charles's Island is?
1: Yeah. Oh, upriver, you mean? Yeah, upriver. Yeah yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Where am I pointing in the wrong direction? Yeah, that's right. Just up there. Though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just below that on River Right, there's mm-hmm. a really good pockety kind of lots of big rocks and stuff. Okay. We call that the lunch spot now. Okay. Um, I had a fish in there that came to five different flies over a little bit about over a two hour period before i finally got it
1: so why do you think he finally took i don't know but you just refused to give up
2: he never felt the hook you know i think once you sting them they're done or at least it always seems that way to me Mm -hmm. but the the first fly i was fishing a um i fish a buck bug a lot yeah it's about maybe an inch long or so might be hair over an inch but about an inch long and i i put that down through and uh i saw the fish boil behind it you know because the flies not an inch beneath the surface in that fast water like that with a floating line and and a long light leader the flies right right on top sometimes it's waking mm-hmm. and and you could see him i saw him boil and i dared again he boiled on that fly again then he, he went away he wouldn't come back I never felt him i use a um a thunder and lightning It's an old Atlantic salmon kind of fly. Yeah, I
1: thought so. That's my
2: comeback fly. And so I put on a little thunder and lightning and put it down through there. And it just felt a little like a smolt kind of thing. And then nothing. So I stopped and brought it back in. Make about three or four steps upstream. uh, Tied on a little skunk, Uh a little green butt skunk. Put it down through there. He boiled on that one. Wouldn't eat it let's see what and i put on something else uh i pro- probably put on a smaller buck bug and tried that uh nothing and i and i use this um it's kind of a little caddis a moose hair caddis thing mm-hmm. again it's just a nondescript brownish moose hair with a muddler kind of head and moose coming out all the way around the body it just looks like a bug in the water and and it uh it ate that but never stuck Mm-hmm. And then it wouldn't come back, wouldn't come back. So I said, okay, that's it. I went back to the, the buck bug that I had on first, took about two steps upstream, made one step down, and pfft, there he was.
1: Do you adjust the speed of your swing to match the size of your fly?
2: No. Not really, no. Not intentionally.
1: But you know, it's interesting. I read Topher Brown's Atlantic Salmon magic book, and he has this theory that a smaller bug or fish can't swim as fast through the current as a larger one. So if you're fishing a smaller fly, you should have a slower swing and vice versa.
2: I don't speed the fly up at all with steelhead. I always try to keep you know keep the swing just pretty constant. No herky-jerky, you know, just, I mean, that's the way, probably there's other people who do it that catch more fish than I do and have been doing it a lot longer that do it differently, but that is what I've always done. I try to make a cast so that as soon as the fly hits the water, it's fishing. Okay, yeah. So I probably cast more downstream than most people cast across more than I do. I'll try to cast a longer line so I get a bigger piece of the pie but I keep that angle the same Mm -hmm. and just let it come across as slowly as I can with a line as straight as possible. I hate it when my line does this, does that, does that snake thing in it. I want it just nice and straight.
1: Do you ever step downstream while you're swinging?
2: Uh, No, never thought of it. it. might work sometimes. I don't know. If you step down when you're swinging, to me it's counterintuitive Because what I I like to go in there and think, okay, somewhere in this run is a fish. And I am going to make sure that I make my fly do what I want it to do in front of that fish.
1: Make sure he sees it.
2: Yeah. So if I blow a cast, I repeat it. Or if something happens where all of a sudden if there happened to be a fish there, he wouldn't have seen that fly, I'll repeat the cast and make sure. That he does. Mm -hmm. So if you step down some of the time, you're lower in the fly, maybe below a fish or something. I don't know.
1: It's hard to stay consistent.
2: Well, I I try to and sometimes it works, you know.
1: What about if it's bright outside versus if it's
2: overcast? I don't pay any attention to it.
1: Yeah, I don't either. I I start,
2: you know. Maybe it would make sense with some of the winter fish. You know, I have done a not a tremendous amount, but a fair amount of uh, fishing for those winter fish with big gaudy flies, and it maybe a bright fly on a bright day. I don't know.
1: But don't you live in Washington now?
2: Yeah, yeah. You don't. I, you
1: didn't dive into the winter steelhead. Um, I
2: I do some. You know, I keep the trailer over in Forks during the winter, um, and my brother comes up for a, a while and spends a month there, and he he really gets into it. More so than I. I don't enjoy the the um, the winter flip fishing experience as much as I enjoy doing it up here, where it's um, summer weather and dry line and not raining yeah. and and I feel like I can get away a little bit better up here. You know, it's Washington's getting it gets pretty crowded down there.
1: Do you find it's gotten pretty crowded here too? Um,
2: yes. But it's um, you know, we're we're we don't get out there at the crack of dawn. Yeah. The the people that are aggressive and just have to be there and stuff like that, they're they're usually long gone by the time I get on the river. I get my uh, my six or eight hours of fishing, and that's about all I need.
1: I like your style. Do you find that you catch smaller fish by fishing up top? No. And I ask only because when I was doing my television series, I was fishing a bamboo rod light line and you know traditional flies and then i would always fish with somebody who was fishing a skagit line and tip and a big marabou leech or something Mm -hmm. similar so that we could compare and i was hooking a lot smaller fish and people going through behind me and dredging for catching larger fish
2: Boy, i you know
1: i caught some big fish but not not as many as the
2: dredged fish it doesn't seem like that to me I mean, these fish here, uh, in a typical year, you always see some of the, we call them Maurice fish. I don't know if that's indeed what they are, but they're fish that, that appear to have spent less time in the salt. And and they're... Oh, Six pounds. Yeah, 25, 26, 27 inches, you know, delightful little fish. Uh, you always see some of those they are far from the majority.
1: Yeah, so you're still catching big fish up, up oh, top yeah, of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I often wonder if it's just that when I fish, <coughs> when a lot of us are fishing lighter stuff, it's usually earlier in the summer or earlier in the fall, and that is when the smaller fish are in, because I've always found that the bigger fish tend to come in a little bit later.
2: Well, that that could be. That could be.
1: For tonight, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me?
2: Um... I I just I guess it's sad to me to realize that uh we'll have uh, conversations about how things used to be and it's uh it's unfortunate that that they'll never be that way again but 10 years from now some of these young kids out there will be talking about what we're seeing right now and and these will have become the good old days you know yeah you remember remember 10 years ago when we used to be able to go out and hook a fish or two every day I I fear for these fish. Being a steelhead's a hard way to make a living anymore, and it just seems like the uh, the elements, and the politics, and the um, unfortunate greed that is a part of our society is going to conspire to uh, to make it tough for these things to live. You know, I mean, we drive along the Thompson on the way up here. It breaks my heart to do that. You think of what that used to be. Last year they thought there might have been 120 of them that made it back. 120 fish.
1: It's the biggest environmental tragedy that I have personally experienced. I mean, there's a lot of tragedies you happening, what's right
2: happening right now, happening, but... yeah, Look at what's happening. Look at this run this year. I mean, who knows? It's always been cyclical. Let's face it. Um, and, and you see things like the Skagit, where the run is... Not what it used to be, but it's still fairly healthy. You know, they're getting their eight thousand fish or ten thousand fish or something like that. So maybe it's possible. But uh, you know, I think with the with the climate change and uh, uh, the water quality issues and the fact that there's just too many bipods on this orb anymore, you know, we better enjoy enjoy and try to protect what we what little we do have left, and hope that our kids get to enjoy it. But uh, I'm fearful that it's it's probably not going to happen. It, 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 I find no comfort in saying that. Certainly, you know, and maybe as you get uh, as you get older and things have changed, you um, take on a, a pessimistic view of things. But uh, I can't think of a resource that is getting a whole lot better now as a result of what we're doing. We're loving these special places to death.
1: Would you stop?
2: Well, you know, I kind of feel like um, the way I go about it lessens my impact i I do think that I could catch more fish if I wanted to get down and dirty and stick something big in their face um I don't know that for a fact, but i I believe that that's the that's it no i I sometimes feel guilty about still pestering them, but uh, I, I don't feel like uh, with a few fish that we we catch and the way we handle them and that we're doing much damage, but I still do at times feel guilty about it, no question. Not enough to stop, but a little guilty.
1: Well, I'll be having another podcast about that in a future episode about if catch and release is... Selfish, and if it is, if it's okay that's, to be selfish every once in a while.
2: That is, that's an interesting thing. There is sort of a a primal urge to go out and hunt and fish. I know I have. I find that in myself. Maybe it's something that's that's born into us. It wasn't all that long ago that we had to do that to live, and it's something that is there. Here's a way to satisfy that.
1: But why not fish for salmon and take home salmon? Um, Because I found myself fishing the other day, and I'll be honest, a steelhead would have been cool, but I was targeting coho. And uh, and Charles, he just couldn't understand where I was coming from. I I feel like, I mean, I still love catching steelhead, but I don't know. Every season, I never know, I can never predict where my head's going to be at. Sometimes I just am steelhead crazed, and I and I need to catch steel, and then other mm-hmm. times I just want to leave them alone. And I can't figure myself out.
2: I guess that's the the human nature in all of us. Um, to me, it's it's I find it physically fun to go out there and, and go through the process. I notice things on the river that were it not for those fish, I wouldn't be there to notice some of the other things. Mm-hmm. It's an it's an interesting uh, conundrum, you know. It's I don't know that there is a a singular answer to it. I guess we all have to come up with our own answer, and uh,
1: and I think we all have our own individual <clears throat>
2: answer and be comfortable with it.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and it, if at some time it's it doesn't feel right to do it anymore, then I guess you move on to something else. I don't know.
1: Well, listen, I'm going to wrap it up Alrighty. and let you get out. And I just thank you so much for meeting up with me tonight. Oh, and
2: my, my pleasure, April. It's, um, as I say, you were uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel here with your...
1: I've been trying to get to you for years. It's <coughs> just, it's always, there's always, just it's just too well, hard. We're, we're busy fishing. And steelhead and But, I mean, even out there tonight, we're sitting by the fire, and it's like, okay, we got to get up. we got to get up and go inside and do this. It's hard to leave the fire.
2: Yeah, Sometimes it's just hard to verbalize some of these things, you know?
1: It's almost always hard to verbalize some of these things. Yeah. 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 Well, Alrighty. thank you so much. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.